If you'll remain standing with me this morning and turn once again in your copy of God's Word to the prophet Micah. The prophet Micah, in particular this evening, turning to Micah chapter 2, as we take up our consideration of the book at chapter 2, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 11. For the sake of context, though, this evening we'll read from the very beginning of chapter 2 all the way through chapter 11. Micah chapter 2, verse 1 and following. This is the word of our God. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portions of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. Let us go to our Lord once again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come this evening once again to your holy word. And we plead with you that you would teach us from it. We pray, Father, that you would show us, O Lord, the danger which lurks about us, all around us in the church, the danger of those who would enter in and who would preach, and who would preach falsely. We pray, O Lord, that you would not only warn us, but that you would remind us, you would stir us up to watchfulness so that we would be those who were careful to recognize truth and to reject wickedness. But Father, we also pray that you would show us and remind us of the grace that you show to your people, and particularly the grace that you have shown most gloriously, the grace of the Savior Jesus Christ. 
It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this evening we come once again to our consideration of the book of Micah. And we come to the second part of Micah chapter 2. If you remember, the first part of Micah chapter 1 is focused upon the oppressor. It is focused upon that one who committed great acts of injustice against God's people in the land of Israel. You'll be reminded that these were men, which we just read about, who had power. They had the power that allowed them to wickedly assert their dominance over those who were unable to protect themselves against their wealth and against their influence. They coveted fields and they seized them. They took houses away from others. They oppressed a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. That portion of the text was focused like a laser upon those oppressive elites who lived in the land of Israel and took advantage of the weak among God's people. But you'll remember that the Lord spoke a word to them. You'll remember that He said to them, just as they devise evil against His people, so He is devising destruction and judgment against them for all that they have done. Well, this evening as we move past that initial section of chapter 2 and we come to verses 6 and following, we come to yet another group of people who the Lord God of Israel particularly zeroes in upon for condemnation and judgment. This evening it is not the political elites, it is not the socially powerful, but instead it is the false prophets who have risen up amongst His people. Indeed, many commentators point out that there's no doubt that these two groups of people worked in conjunction with one another to harass, to oppress, and to commit injustice against God's people. It makes perfect sense if you think about it for just a moment. These false messengers with their false message came in and they came in to proclaim a message that was agreeable to those who were oppressing his people. Namely this, that these premonitions of God's coming judgment were false. There is no judgment. Would God, the God who delivered our fathers out of the land of Egypt, the God who has shown us mercy and grace and demonstrated His patience to us for all these many years, would this God now come in judgment upon us? Well, certainly it must not be the case. You see, this message, this message that God's judgment is not coming would have been a great comfort to those oppressors of God's people and to God's people in general. And it's to these false prophets that God now turns His attention as He gives His word to Micah to proclaim to His people. And what Micah does here in this section of our text is really attack two things, two aspects of these false teachers, their ministry and their message. He zeroes in first upon their message itself. You see, the message that these false prophets brought was a false message. It was a false teaching. 
they sought to bring comfort to the consciences of those living in the land of Israel who were facing the imminent judgment of God by deceiving them into believing that God would never come in judgment upon Israel. They preached peace where there was no peace. To quote from the book of Isaiah, and Micah focuses in first upon this reality of these false teachers. But then secondly, he focuses also upon the character of these false preachers, these false prophets, these false teachers of God's people. And as we consider that, we consider the fact that these were men who were not only deceived in some way, but these were men who were wicked themselves. These were men who were more than happy to benefit from the relationship that they had with the oppressors of God's people. They were more than happy to live lives of comfort and of ease and to preach a message which never bothered anyone. They were more than happy to do so. And that exposes not only the fact that their message is wicked and false, but that their character is one of a hardness of heart and one which doubted the reality of God, the reality of his judgment. And really what we see here as we take a step back and consider this passage as a whole is simply this, that the false prophets of Micah's day, and I would say the false prophets of our own day, can be spotted. They can be known by two distinct attributes. First, they can be spotted by their false message. And then second, they can be spotted by their evil character. And these two things we'll see elaborated upon by Micah here in the passage before us. Let's consider first then as we take up the text at verse 6, the message of these false prophets. Look what they say here at the beginning of verse 6. And they come and they speak. Here in verse 6, we hear the voice of the false prophet. They say, do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Now think about what they're saying here. They're saying to Micah here, do not preach. Do not preach the message which you have been preaching. And the reason they don't want him to preach that message which he's been preaching is because they disagree with the very premise of his message. That They say to him, disgrace will not overtake us. Now note, uh, the prophet Micah has brought a harsh word to the nation of Israel. He has come against the nation and he has presented to them this incredible picture of God descending from his heavenly temple and standing before them as the judge of all of creation of entering into court with them, of reading off to them, as it were, their transgressions against His law and pronouncing them guilty and sentencing them to a punishment which would have been almost unbearable to hear. The punishment was to be that the northern kingdom of Samaria was to be completely destroyed, completely wiped off the face of the earth, and that the southern kingdom would be devastated as well. It was a harsh message. It was a message of judgment. And yet, it was a true message. It was a true message. 
And it was a message that these false prophets, though, didn't like. And they didn't like it because of what they say here. Disgrace will not overtake us. You shouldn't preach like this, Micah. You're going to disturb the people. You're telling them something that's not actually going to happen. How could God, the God of Israel, the God who has shown us such a love and who has been so gracious to us in the past, how could He ever come and judge His people? Now think about what they're actually saying there. Think about what they're actually doing there. They're doing something that's extremely dangerous. Not only for them to do in their own day, but for us to do in our day. They are presuming upon the grace of God. They're presuming upon the grace of God. Indeed, they're presuming upon the grace of God to the extent that it seems that they don't even recognize that He is not only a God who is steadfast in His loving kindness, who brings forgiveness to His people, who shows mercy upon mercy to His people, but He is also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. He is not a God who is to be mocked. He's not a God who is to be mocked. And yet, the God of these false prophets is a God who is inactive and who is unwilling to judge the wicked. Now, perhaps part of what's going on here is that these false prophets have a very low view of God's law. It's it's unclear here. Perhaps that's the case. And perhaps they think, well, we're really not that bad. Yes, of course, we sacrifice some children to Moloch every once in a while. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we commit idolatry in the holy city of God where he's placed his name to dwell. Yeah, okay, sometimes we push the poor out of their homes so that we can steal them for ourselves and, and, and build up our estates. Yeah, sometimes we do those things, but really, we're not all that bad, are we? Maybe that was their view. Or maybe their view was even more cynical. Maybe it was just that they really didn't believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was as holy as He said He was. Maybe it's that they didn't really believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was as powerful as He said He was. We don't know what was going through their minds, but what we do know is that what they were seeking to do is they sought to interrupt the true prophet of God from preaching a message while unpopular, no doubt, and unpleasant to hear was incredibly necessary. What they sought to do there was to undermine the truth of God from going forth. They rejected the true prophet and his message. And we note that there in verse 6, but also in verse 7. Should this be said, O house of Israel, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? It's interesting. Listen to the way they describe God there. Is the judgment being described by Micah really the God that we worship? You ever heard somebody say that before? Something very similar. I've heard that a lot. I could never believe in a God who would send people to hell. (laughs) That sounds very, very similar to what these prophets are saying. Are these his deeds? I thought he was a loving God. How can he, the God 
who has revealed himself to be such a loving God, how could he ever come in judgment? Are these his deeds? Again, we see something of the falsehood in their theology. They have a lopsided understanding of God. They worship a God who, by the way, is no God at all. They worship a God who is a God of love, but not of biblically defined love, who is a God not of justice, but who is a passive God, who is a God who sees the iniquities that are committed against his people and he, he brushes them off. He's not zealous for the worship of his name. He's not jealous for the glory which he demands. Instead, he is really, to put it bluntly, a God who is a figment of their imagining. That's the God, that's the theology that the false prophets had. And that's fundamental to the reason why they reject the preaching of Micah. They reject his preaching because his preaching describes the true God, his true character, and the danger of rebelling against him. They didn't like that. But it's not just that they reject the truth that Micah preaches. We note that as we continue through the text. And look at what we see as we move into the latter part of verse 7 and the rest, really, uh, of the section down to verse 10. The end of verse 7, we have a shift here. Commentators are divided. I take the view, though, that what's happening here is God is beginning to speak. And listen to what he says. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly. Now listen. He says here, if this is the Lord speaking, I believe it is. I do good, yes, to those who walk uprightly. Now that doesn't mean those who keep the law perfectly. That doesn't mean those who are zealous for the ceremonial aspects of the law even, perhaps. Now that's important. It's very important. But what it means is, I do good to those who walk before me by faith, who walk before me seeking to do my will because they seek in all of their life to glorify me and we could say to enjoy me. He's talking about those who are true believers in the Lord God. Those are the ones who he's describing here. To those who walk uprightly, I do good. And to him, my words do good. But look at what he says here in verse 8. It's a statement which is antithetical to the view which the false prophets seem to hold. But lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. What a powerful statement. Perhaps this one is almost as powerful as that one we find in chapter 1 where we saw him say incredibly, what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? But here is another dagger in the heart of God's people. No longer are those who call or call by my name, who claim to worship me, who claim to desire a relationship with me. No longer are you, Israel, my chosen portion. No longer are you my friends. My people 
who walk in communion and in fellowship with me, but you have become to me enemies. What a powerful indictment that he brings here. What a powerful indictment. Now, of course, he's not talking about everyone here in the nation of Israel. We know that. But what he's saying is that by and large, those covenant people in the old covenant, the Jewish people here, the Israelites, the Hebrews, these people who were called by his name, who possessed his covenant, had rejected it to the point where no longer were they merely wandering sheep even. They had actively become enemies of God. It's a powerful, powerful statement he makes here. And he goes on to describe how they've become enemies of God. Listen to what he does. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. That's a difficult passage in some ways to understand exactly what he's getting at here, but it seems to be the case that what he's telling them is simply this, that whenever you see someone walking by you know, with no thought of war, with no thought of danger, with no thought that they might be in peril at all, these people of Israel who claim to be God's friends but who are actually his enemies, they're the kind of people who see someone walking by innocently like that and they steal their clothing their rich robe from off of them. They take their prized possessions. They are thieves. That's the kind of people who God is dealing with here. That's the kind of people who God is bringing judgment to. These are not people who walk in uprightness. These are people who have become corrupt to the very depth of their souls. And they are demonstrating that by their acts of wickedness. But it's not only their acts of wickedness that are described here, it's also, again, their acts particularly of oppression. Look at what he says in verse 9. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. Note, again, he has an interest in those who are vulnerable in the nation of Israel who are being taken advantage of by those who have more power than they. Again, he has a heart for the oppressed. We talked about that last time. You see that all the way back to the Exodus when God hears the cries of his people and he knows something of their oppression and comes to liberate them from their oppressors. Here again, he reminds, Micah does, to these false prophets it seems, the reality of the situation of the nation of Israel in this day. These are people who are wicked and oppressive. They kick out women from their homes. And they take them to themselves, no doubt. There's no question this is connected with what we saw up above in the passage when we saw that it was the oppressors, those elites in the nation who had the power that they were able to covet the field and seize them, the houses, and take them away. He's just reminding, once again, the false prophets of this upright people's nature. It's not so upright. It's corrupted. He goes on, not only have they done these acts of wickedness towards the women, they have also, by way of oppressing these women, oppressed their children. From their children you take away my splendor 
forever. Again, another sobering and powerful statement here. They have oppressed these women. They have pushed them out of their homes. Perhaps he's addressing those who live in the capital city of Jerusalem, and he's speaking about them actually being pushed out of the city in which his glory dwells. It's hard to be sure about that. But what he's speaking of here is not merely that they have done injustice in a physical sense, but in some way they have done injustice in a spiritual sense. They have deprived the children of the enjoyment of God's splendor. That's the state of things. That's the state of things. And yet, these false prophets have the audacity to say it's not that bad. It's not that bad. God's judgment isn't coming. Would He really do that to us? It's us. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, He would. Because of your corruption and your injustice. And that's what we see very clearly in verse 10. You see that they've rejected the truth of God preached through his prophet Micah. They've affirmed wickedness and oppression of the people of Israel here by ignoring it, by we would imagine not preaching against it, but allowing it to go on in cahoots with the elite of the land. But last of all, they ignore God's coming judgment. Verse 10 points us in this direction. Again, it's still the Lord speaking here. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. This is no place to rest. Again, a striking statement to one who knows the Old Testament. What is the land of Israel? It's supposed to be the place where God's people can rest. We even see that theology, if you will, shown forth to us in a place like Hebrews chapter 3. When we see that God's people long for an eternal Sabbath. And as we long for that eternal Sabbath, we wonder, as it were, in the wilderness of this world, in a similar way to the people of Israel wandering through the desert on their way to their promised land. They were going through the wilderness to their rest. That language is used throughout the Old Testament of the land of Israel. And here God comes and He says, this land, this place, because of this people and their corruption, is no longer a place of rest. It's no longer a place of rest. It's no longer what it should have been. And it's no longer what it should have been because of the uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction, he says. This verse is very similar in many ways to other texts that we find in the prophets which speak to us about the pollution of the land of Israel by the sins of God's people. It has become an unclean place. We spoke a few weeks ago as we were studying the Gospel of Mark about the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples when they, preaching in the land of Israel, came to a place that rejected them. 
And you'll remember at that time that Jesus gave them the instructions mirroring the Jewish practice to take off their sandals or in one case to wipe the sand off of their feet or to shake it off of their sandals. And we talked about how that image is the image of one who has passed through a land that is polluted by Gentiles. And when you got through that land, if you were a devout Jewish person, you would knock the dust of that land off of your feet to symbolize that you were ridding yourself of that pollution. And we talked about how ironic it was that Christ uses that language, that image of pollution, of corruption, even into the soil of the land of Israel to describe their sad spiritual state as they rejected the Savior. But here in the book of Micah, we learn that that is by no means something that is new in Jesus' time. The land, even at this early date, had been so corrupted and polluted by the people of Israel, by their idolatry, by their spiritual adultery, that it's here called to be destroyed, or it's said to be destroyed because of the uncleanness that is within it. The uncleanness that destroys or the grievous destruction. Now, as we step back from this portion of the text and before we move on to verse 11 and consider just a bit the character of the false prophets in greater detail, (coughs) excuse me, I would note for just a moment that here we get a wonderful glimpse, really. Wonderful in one sense because it teaches us something. Not wonderful in the sense that it's good. We get an insightful glimpse. That's probably a better way to say it. Of the message of false teachers. The message of false teachers, yes, in Micah's day, but the message of false teachers even in our own day. Brethren, if we were living in the land of Israel in Micah's day, there is no doubt that it would have been very appealing to listen to the false prophets. Because their message, quite frankly, is much more comforting. It's much easier to hear. It's much easier to abide in many ways. They are coming and saying, look, God is a God of love. Yes, you have problems as a nation. Yes, you have problems as individuals. But really, God is a God who is patient. So patient, apparently, that He will never come in judgment. What they were doing here is they were saying, look, the God of Micah, He doesn't sound very appealing. He sounds kind of judgy. We hear that language used sometime today, don't we? This is not a God that we want to worship. It's not a God that we want to serve. He's a cruel God. That's the implication that they're making here. Brethren, let me assure you that if you want to hear preaching like that, you can go to many churches in this country and around the world, and you can hear preaching that will sound eerily similar to the preaching of these false prophets. You will see preachers standing in pulpits and saying, really, we do not need to call sinners to repentance. We just need to comfort them, assure them, love them. We need to affirm them. You will not see people calling 
men, women, boys, and girls to reckon with the reality that they are sinners who stand face to face, spiritually speaking, with the God of all creation and a God who is matchless in His majesty, a God who is holy. You will find people who will seek to domesticate God. And you will find people who are unwilling to speak the hard truths of God's Word because they do not want to lose their positions of power, comfort, and ease. This is not a flash-in-the-pan movement. This is an abiding reality for the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, we have got to be on guard against this. Let me say this to you this day. I hope and I pray that there is never a day where Matthew Ezel stands in this pulpit and shrinks back from declaring to you the Word of God in all of its fullness. Come what may. But friends, if that day ever came, you better kick me out of this pulpit. And I'm dead serious about that. I'm dead serious about that. It is a sad story that has been repeated time after time after time in the history of God's church that men have come into pulpits and began to water down the truth of God's Word to the point where when they preached, they no longer heralded the truth of God, but they deceived. They deceived and they provided false comfort to those who should have never been comforted. Brethren, I pray that's never true of me, and I pray that's never true of anyone who stands in this pulpit. But understand, and I'll say this to you this evening, members of Zion, it's not just your minister and it's not just your elders who bear responsibility for the protection of the truth of the Word of God in the pulpit at Zion Presbyterian Church. It's your responsibility as well. And I pray that a day never comes where you're willing to sit under a person who would preach such falsehoods to you. It's your role to elect your leaders. That's a God-given role that He's given to you. We see it, for instance, in Acts chapter 6. And therefore you bear responsibility just as I do and just as Elder Joyner and Hughes do for protecting and watching over the message of Zion Presbyterian Church. Don't think it couldn't happen here. <laughs> it happened to Israel. It could happen to Zion. It could happen to the OPC. We don't want to see that. We pray that it never happens, but it could. And beloved, don't allow it to happen without fighting a good fight. This is a problem in our own day. But we see that it's not only the message of the false prophets that's a problem. We move on to verse 11, and Micah zeroes in a little more upon the actual character of these men. That's been underlying everything that he's said thus far, but you note how he speaks about them there in verse 11. He poses 
really what might be a rhetorical situation here. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Now that speaks to two things. It speaks to the character of the false prophets themselves, doesn't it? But it also speaks to the character of those who heard them. That's what we read from 2 Timothy chapter 4 just a little while ago. The Apostle Paul warns Timothy that there is a time in the future where people will not abide sound doctrine. Instead, they will seek to accumulate those who will scratch their itching ears, who will seek to speak to them the words that they want to hear, not the words that God wants them to hear. And that's the case here. He says, Israel, you're the kind of people who would love a preacher who would preach to you of wine and strong drink. He's using that as, a, as an image for all of their wickedness and their debauchery. He's saying, in other words, you want a preacher who will tell you that you were doing just fine when you were sinning against the Lord. That's what you want. That's the kind of preacher you desire. You don't want a preacher who's going to call you out. You want a preacher who's going to affirm you. But you note that the kind of man who does that is the kind of man who utters wind and lies. It's not just the character of the people that's called into question here. It's the character of the kind of man who would do such a thing. The kind of man who would, again, to quote from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 16, say, peace, peace, when there is no priest. It's the kind of man who at his heart is a liar. He understands what God's Word says, but he doesn't preach it. He doesn't preach it. Why doesn't he preach it? He doesn't preach it because even though he knows what it says, he either, one, doesn't believe it, or two, and even worse, he just doesn't care. He's out to serve his own ends. He's out to maintain his position. He's out to please his hearers. For that reason, he shows himself to be a liar. He utters words that are useless. Useless at best, deceit at worst. He affirms the sins of the people in front of him. That's the kind of people, or rather that's the kind of preacher that the nation of Israel would have desired. Again, let me say to you, Zion Presbyterian Church, I pray that that's not the kind of man you desire. I don't think it is, but I pray that it's the kind of man you never desire. It's a very dangerous place to be in a position where you don't want to be confronted by the Word of God, but instead you want someone to stand before you and affirm your wickedness and your sin. It's a very, very dangerous place to be. As an application of this, I would just say to you, when you hear the preaching of God's Word, remember to place yourself under it. 
there's going to be times where I stand in this pulpit and I don't preach very good sermons. Believe me, you know that already. But I'll tell you again. But when God's truth comes from it, you're not to sit in judgment upon the message because things weren't phrased the way you would like them to be phrased. Or something was stated a little bit off in your opinion. But instead, you are meant to receive the Word of God as a humble hearer of that Word and to pray and seek to apply that Word to your heart and to your mind even when it exposes your sinfulness. Even when it exposes those hidden corners of unbelief of rebellion in your own heart and in your own mind. Be intentional to place yourself under the Word of God and to receive it as one who hears your Father when He speaks to you and desires to live in a manner that would be pleasing to Him. It would be pleasing to Him. As we conclude this passage, I know you wish we would go on to look at verses 12 and 13 tonight, but we won't. But I assure you that we're going to get there. And when we do, we're going to see that by God's matchless grace, even these people who He here calls enemies still are going to be those who are going to receive His mercy. It's an amazing thing as we consider the depravity of the nation of Israel here that the very next verses that follow are that first glimmer of gospel hope that we really see here in the book of Micah. When God speaks to them and tells them that he will again assemble them after he has chastened them by sending them into exile and that he will again bless them. And I would say that to you this Evening, friends, I know that this is a sermon, this is a text which has many difficult things to communicate to us. It's a sermon which is really meant to warn us about the dangers of those who would slip in and corrupt the church. But I do want to remind you that even for those who at one time have been rebellious unto the Lord, there remains grace for those who will turn, who will repent, and who will return to Him. As incredible as that is, it's true. Grace even, we might say, for those who had distorted His Word at times. His grace is amazing, and it is boundless, and we will consider it more next week. But for the moment, I do want to again call you to watchfulness. Call you to be on guard against hard-hearted deceivers who for their own gain reject the truth of God, preach peace to the wicked, ignore the righteous coming judgment of the Lord. I want to warn you to be on guard against those who are false messengers. And I want to remind you that you will know such men by their message and by their character. Therefore, be vigilant, be on guard, and pray that the Lord would watch over us 
that he would be gracious to us and that he would protect us from such wickedness. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, when we come to your word at times, it encourages, at times it rebukes. At times it calls us, even as it did this evening, to watchfulness. We pray, Father, that you would indeed give to us a village of vigilance over the church of God. I pray that particularly for those of us who are officers in your church. But I ask, O Lord, that you would give this not only to us, but also to those who are simply faithful Christian people. We pray, Father, that you would allow us to discern falsehood and that you would give us the boldness to say something about it when it appears. Lord, give to us, we pray, your spirit to guide and to direct us. And we ask these all, all these things in Christ's name. Amen.